Next, the golden days of radio. This is Frank Brzee welcoming you to the golden days of radio. Great moments from radio programs of the past with the world's most famous personalities. Those memorable moments when everyone listened to enjoy the make-believe world of radio. On this program, we are featuring Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, Don Amici, Francis Langford, the Olympic Track Games, an excerpt from One Man's Family, and a comedy sequence with Bob and Ray. One of the biggest hit parade songs in 1944 was Don't Fence Me In. And here's the group that made it a hit, Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters. Oh, give me land, lots of land, under starry skies above. Don't fence me in, let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze And listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever, but I ask you please Don't fence me in Just turn me loose, let me straddle my old saddle Underneath the western sky On my cayuse, let me wander Yonder till I see the mountains rise I want to ride to the ridge Where the west commences Gaze at the moon till I lose my fences Cause I can't look at hobbles And I can't stand fences Don't fence me Let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western skies. On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. Bum, 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 bum. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon till I lose my senses cause I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in Papa, don't you fence me in Don Amici and Francis Langford were each stars in their own right. But in the early 40s, they teamed up for a comedy show that kept radio listeners in stitches. Here they are as the Bickersons.
what, what, what's, what's the matter? Uh, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Blanche. Blanche. Oh, wait a minute, dear. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. <laughs> what? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. <laughs> what kind of remark is that? That's supposed to be funny? No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget it. I didn't forget it. Then why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. That's <laughs> uh, too bad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. <laughs> John Biggers. Okay, I'm sorry. That you hack away at me in the morning And I'm so exhausted I don't know what I'm saying You wouldn't be so exhausted If you went to bed at a reasonable hour I had to work overtime Pour me some coffee Did you get paid? I'll get paid What time did you get home? 12.30 If you got home at 12.30 Why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact You didn't come to bed until almost 2 I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight you invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff. Well, I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato salad? I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. It had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for it. I, I know what you meant, Blanche. Steal the potatoes and I even boiled them last night. Holy smoke, look at the time. Where's my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. And my shoes are missing from the sink. Nothing's missing, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. <laughs> By the time I find everything, I'll be late for work. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question. Only I should be asking it. Don't be so snide. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy. Took me an hour to find the right crease. <laughs> Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the cuffs on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand and step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been put putting on my own pants for over 40 years and I don't need you to form in the car. <laughs> Hand me my tie. Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. <laughs> my suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Ferguson, you know your shoes I are I know, and I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where'd you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you can find to cover that cage with? It hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking birdseed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> Leave my shirt alone. No bird's gonna sleep later than I do. Ah, <laughs> oh, shut up! John, why am 
must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. Well, you shouldn't have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like I was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. <laughs> I gotta go. Here. And don't forget your sample. I won't forget it. Darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. <laughs> Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There. Now, got everything? I guess so. Uh, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? And you can bring me the change when you come home. Now, listen, Blanche. Something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple of dollars in his pocket. Well, don't yell at me. I don't mind going and torn clothes, holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. Well, what's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know you pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche. Every morning of my life, I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. Lunch? That's the garbage. <laughs> Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary. Radio has covered sporting events since the early 20s, including all of the Olympic Games. In the name of the President of the United States, I proclaim open the Olympic Games of Los Angeles, celebrating the 10th Olympiad of the modern era. The voice you just heard was the Vice President of the United States, Charles Curtis, as he opened the Olympic Games of 1932 held in Los Angeles. Four years later, on a brilliant Sunday in August, thousands of the world's greatest athletes marched into the Mammoth Olympic Stadium in Berlin. The nations of the world marched side by side under a blue German sky. Soon after the games got underway, it became evident that one name would dominate all the rest. His name was Jesse Owens. And before the curtain would ring down on the 1936 Olympics, he would win four gold medals. He won the 100 meters, the running broad jump, the 200 meters, and was leadoff man on the victorious 400-meter relay. Here's Jesse Owens with famous newscaster Ted Husing. Six boys walked out on the field unnoticed. Unnoticed because a German boy had won an Olympic victory and the crowd was giving him an ovation that was due an Olympic champion. As we sat there on that bench unnoticed, this is the sight that I saw within that wonderful area. As my eyes wandered across the field, I noticed a green grass, a red track with the white lines. And as my eyes wandered into the stands, I noticed 120,000 people sitting and standing within that great area. And as my eyes wandered upward again, I noticed a flag of every nation that was represented there in the Olympic Games underneath that German blue sky. My attention was diverted in that beautiful picture because a whistle had been blown. And we were to assemble around a starter to receive our... Here are the lanes, ladies and gentlemen. From the inside to the outside, Jesse Owens on the pole. Lennart Spanberg of Sweden next to him in second lane. Eric Borchmeyer, the German Borchmeyer. Jesse Owens is running in white shoes today. Ralph is running in black shoes. And here they go, down in the mark. The starter stepped back about ten paces, and he hollered in a loud German voice, Offer Pretzer. 
and when he uttered out for pressure, every man went to his mark. Adjusting our hands and our feet, the starter suddenly said in a soft voice, Fertig. And when he hollered Fertig, every man came to a set position. The wind is blowing here, it's a little bit chilly. They're set. The gun sounds and they're away, and Jesse Owens comes down today with Ralph Metcalf. The boys ran neck and neck for 50 yards. Ralph Metcalf from Marquette University was leading the field to the 70-yard mark. And from the 70 to the 90, Ralph and I ran neck and neck. Starts moving. He's a yard or two out in front. Metcalf is coming second up on him. It's Owens, Metcalf, and Ozendorf. Metcalf came in second. Ozendorf third. And... For some unknown reason, I beat Ralph Metcalf for Marquette University in this most historic event. But the greatest honor came as we stood up there on that pedestal of victory. And after we had knelt and received the wreath of victory from the German maidens, and standing our face in the stands, from a faraway distance, we could hear the strains of the star-spangled banner. And as we three on the pedestal of victory did a left face, I noticed the stars and stripes were rising higher and higher. And the higher the stars and stripes rose, the louder the strains of the star-spangled banner were heard. And then and there I realized my ambition of eight years to become a member of Uncle Sam's Olympic team to emerge as a victor in the Olympic Games provided me with my greatest moment throughout my whole athletic career. Along with great Olympic victories, there's been one goal which track men for decades have strained to reach. That goal, the four-minute mile. In the 1930s, the great American champion Glenn Cunningham came closest. His time was less than five seconds away. Then came the fabulous Swedes, Gunder Haig and Arnie Anderson. Both of them came within two seconds of the coveted mark. In the 1952 Olympic Games at Helsinki, a young medical student named Josie Bartel won the 1,500-meter championship the Olympic equivalent of the mile run. After the race, he was asked who would be the first to run the four-minute mile. Oh, but uh, I can't tell you. Maybe it's Landy, maybe it's Anthea. But uh, if uh, I shall be in that race, I think I have also a chance uh, if uh, we are really uh, going to attack the four minutes. A duo meet at Oxford University was taking place between members of a British amateur track team and the Oxford University track men. One of the uh, British amateurs was a young medical student named Roger Bannister. At the half mile, he was timed in less than two minutes. At three quarters, he was just a fraction over the three-minute mark. Then, with a hysterical crowd behind him, Bannister broke the tape in three minutes, 59 and four-tenths seconds. Immediately after the race, Bannister, still out of breath, told of the great achievement. And I was very lucky to have my two friends, um, Chris Brasher and Chris Chataway, who helped to make some of the running earlier on. And I certainly attribute a lot of it to their presence in the race, which gave me that extra spur to go on. During the golden days of radio, one type of radio drama had already enhanced the female listener. Soap operas went on the air in 1930. Two years later, Just Plain Bill settled into a time slot, and right on its heels, One Man's Family. The first appearance was April 3rd, 1935. Here's a portion of one of their later installments. One Man's Family, brought to you transcribed...
Chapter 25, Book 90. The paper boy who drives pell-mell through the Seacliff Residential District every evening usually dashes past Henry Barber's house at 4.45. But he's late today, and the head of the house of Barber is standing bareheaded on the front walk, watch in hand, looking a trifle impatient. Uh-oh, here he comes. Yeah. Well, about time. Over an hour late. Henry! Goodness, you weren't standing outdoors bareheaded, were you? Yeah. Well, that's how people catch cold, Henry. I haven't had a cold in years. <sighs> I was talking to Hazel on the telephone just now. She said Margaret will stop in here on her way home from the stalwart meeting. And we'll just keep her here, Henry. I've invited them both to stay for dinner. Mm-hmm. Clifford's only coming home to change, so that really makes only one extra. Mrs. Kettleman doesn't mind a bit. Uh, where's Clifford going? I told you this noon, Henry. Huh? Clifford telephoned, said he had a date tonight, and he'd only come home to change. First I've heard of it. I told you at lunch. Oh, you don't listen to me, Henry. I think I would have heard that if you told me, Henry. Well, who's he going out with? He didn't say. Hmm. Well, I'm glad he's going somewhere. It's not right to just work all the time and never have any recreation. Yeah, Clifford never does anything in moderation, Fanny. He's either out all the time or in all the time. He's never learned to strike a balance. Now, don't be critical, Henry. Yes. I told him this morning to find a nice girl of his own. He certainly must encounter lots of nice girls in business. Oof. But he says he does, but they're all spoken for. <laughs> One Man's Family is brought to you Monday through Friday at this time, transcribed. Monday, A Name Out of the Past. Chapter 26, Book 90. This is a Carlton E. Morse production. Well, that was Chapter 25, Book 90, One Man's Family. Let's suppose this smooth-running program, a program that was on the air for over a quarter of a century, just once was not too well rehearsed. Let's say the members of One Man's Family did not get along too well together. Here's comedians Bob and Ray to show us what it would have sounded like. Now, Tanglefoot, the greatest name in flypaper, brings you another episode of One Fellow's Family. Today's episode entitled Paint Up, Clean Up. It's taken from Book 22, Chapter XXIV. Pages 15, 16, 17, and two sentences from the middle of page 18. It's shortly after nine in the morning as we look in on the butcher family. We find Father Butcher. Uh, uh, Feli, have you seen my purple plate? And Mother Butcher standing just inside the door, and she answers. What? And then Father Butcher. I said, Feli, have you seen Will my you be purple... quiet, announce, and let us do it now, please? Yes, yes. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to be helpful. Yes. What were you saying, fool announcer? Feli? Then he said, then she says, and then he says. That's perfectly obvious. There's we know what seat. we're saying, thank you. We were here for more rehearsals than you were. I do add well, I didn't more have words to be here to your... for all rehearsals, you know. Well, you should see I mean, the I end of the I just do the commercials and I introduce the show. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that it's in the contract yeah. that I have to take any guff from either one fairly, of you two. Fairly, fairly, fairly. Well, well, let us do the program and yeah. then we'll talk about it later. Yeah, yeah. What were you saying now, Father? Well, I've lost my place here now. 
Oh, now, this isn't right. I've never not... had this before. Yeah, yeah. Never, never in all the years Young I've been brought... Young man, announcer, come over here. I yes, have sir. been a character actor for 38 years now. You've been a character, period, pal. Yeah, yeah. And I know when I hear a cue that that's when I'm supposed to start acting. You even forgot what you wanted the purple paint for. It's written right on the script. I, I just yelled out, you want to paint the garage. No, it was to paint the rosebush fence. Well, you're not going to paint the rosebush fence purple, are Why you? Why not? Why it's not? What's the matter with that? Why don't you mind your own business, announcer? <laughs> this <laughs> is our problem, None not of yours. your business. What color we paint the rosebush fence? Well, I... Don't say it's my business, <laughs> but I don't think it's her business to tell you. When are you going to stand oh, up on your own two feet? Where's your backbone, pal? Character actor portraying the same role. Honestly, I never, I think I know never. what color I want to paint the rosebush fit. Scott, <laughs> are you related to Mr. Messy or something? No, I'm not related to Mr. Messy, ma'am. <laughs> what was that supposed to, to be? Go to some, some kind of a radio track? announcer school? No, can't announce at all. Don't <laughs> know your place. Well. Nothing. I'm not in the mood, Fanny. For what? To do this confounded script. Well, you're on the air. You can't just say you're not in the mood. <laughs> you better can it, folks. Time's run out. Oh, am I going to burn. Man. Here. Now the engineer is trying to mess it up. Well, if you'd all mind well, why don't you all show up for rehearsal for the land's sake? You've been listening to one fellow's family. Brought to you by Tanglefoot. You get off microphone, please, sir. Mumble all you want in the far corner. Brought to you by Tanglefoot, the greatest name in fly papers. Today's episode, entitled Paint Up, Clean Up, was taken from Book 22, Chapter XXIV, pages 15, 16, 17, and the middle of page 18. One Fella's Family is written and produced by T. Wilson Messy. This is a Messy production, isn't it? This is a Messy production. That concludes this edition of the Golden Days of Radio. I hope you've enjoyed the past half hour. This is Frank Brzee inviting you back again next time for more great moments from radio programs of the past. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.